Like many of you parents, we read stories to our kids when they were young. One of my favorites was Norbert the Elephant. I read that, I think, to all three of my children. But it struck me not too long ago how different the stories were in content that I grew up on and realized that they wouldn't be written today. So one of the stories that my mother would, would put on the record player, she actually had to do hard work of taking a vinyl LP out of a jacket, sticking it on a you know, record player and putting the needle on. And, and I had a book that went along with a story that I could you know, thumb through as, as, the, as a narrator narrated on the, on the record. And the story was Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, right? Okay, so I listened to that story over and over and over again. It was written in the 1800s, and just listen to the plot line. Young brother and sister, Hansel and Gretel. Uh, stepmother doesn't want them in the house because they're short on food. So her and her cowardly husband basically leave them out in the forest to forage for themselves. Hungry, they find their way to this house that's made of cake and candy. And as they begin to eat the cake and candy, this little old lady comes out, seems friendly at, fir- at first, invites them in, and essentially kidnaps them. And what we find out in the story, of course, she's an evil witch. She has them do all kinds of horrible chores, and then she fattens them up because she is going to eat them. And then in a turn of events, uh, Gretel managed to push the witch into the oven in which she burned alive. You have child abandonment, you have cannibalism, and death by fire. And I read this as a kid. (laughs) Nobody would write that today because it wouldn't sell. We wouldn't want our kids to experience that kind of raw evil. But I'll tell you what, it had an effect on me. There's no way after reading that story I would have went up to a a cake house or a candy house and, and, and eaten. And certainly wouldn't have said yes had a little old lady invited me in. I was scared to death because I saw in that story the face of evil. Or here's another one. I still remember the jacket cover of it. Uh, anybody know where I'm going with this? Little Red Riding Hood. Here's another one. If you stop to think about it, you know, she goes through a dark forest, this little girl all by herself, being stalked by a wolf. And then she gives out her, her destination. I'm going to visit my grandmother who's in bed and she's sick. And so the wolf gets ahead of her and it says, swallowed her grandmother whole. Gets in bed, of course, acts like her grandmother. And we read this over and over again too. Grandma, what a deep voice you have, right? What big eyes you have. And then in the original version or one of the original versions, the wolf jumps out of the bed and eats the little girl too. So you have this big bad wolf that eats grandmother, uh, grandmother and a young girl. Now who does that? That's, that's the kind of stories that I grew up on. It's a big bad wolf. I don't think in today's climate we'd call it the big bad wolf. We'd say it's the kind of bad wolf with mental issues. <laughs> this is just a big bad wolf. And I'm telling you that it, again, it just, you see in the story, like, the face, like, of evil. And it made its mark on me. I still remember those stories as crystal clear, clear as day. And I wonder sometimes, that there's a place for um, age-appropriate content. I wonder sometimes if we have softened things too much so that our children grow up not realizing that there is a true face of evil out there that's cruel. 
the Bible, when it, it talks about evil, it's, it uses some pretty graphic, vivid language that is supposed to, like, penetrate the heart. So far in Genesis 1 and 2, we've been looking at a fresh creation that's teeming with life and blossoming and abounding, and it's just a wonderful place. As we cross into chapter 3, we realize there's something amiss in the Garden of Eden. There's the presence of this serpent. Now, we don't know where it came from. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know at what point the serpent fell. It doesn't give us that information. It just simply shows up. Some have seen the serpent of Genesis 3 literally as a literal serpent. Others have seen it more as a symbol. Whichever way you take it, it's a matter of debate, it points to the same reality, that there is an enemy in the garden. And that enemy is a very real enemy. And as, as, as that enemy, the serpent, develops in Scripture, you see that this, this is a monster. It is the foe. It is the enemy, the adversary of God and humanity, this serpent. Now, I, I realize, I'm not s- stupid, that in our culture, the idea of a devil kind of sounds silly. We make fun of the idea. Uh, some of us mentally would categorize the devil idea as well, there's Zeus, and there's Apollo, and then there's Poseidon, and then there's the devil. It's kind of like a mythological creature. The interesting thing is that in the 15 centuries in which the Bible was written from Moses to the Apostle John, it speaks of this enemy throughout. Listen to some of the ways that this enemy is described. He, of course, is called Satan. If you can say that word, you're saying a Hebrew word, Satan, which simply means adversary or accuser. The book of Isaiah, chapter 14, calls him the day star, which in Latin is Lucifer, or the son of morning. Now, those were labels given to him prior to his catastrophic fall. The sense is that He was created, the serpent was created as the mightiest of God's celestial beings who fell in a desire to have the throne of God. He's called the tempter, the murderer, the liar, the father of lies, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the ruler of demons, Belial, Beelzebub, the roaring lion, and there are many others. The book of Revelation describes them this way. This is the end of the Bible, kind of layering these names together. It says the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's a being absent of mercy, absent of compassion, who has absolutely no value or regard for any human life, unborn, born, or aged. His central aim is to dethrone, deceive, and destroy all of God's works, beginning with humanity. Martin Luther, as you know, wrote a great hymn, and one of the lines describes this, this, this enemy. Let's see if I can get the lyrics right. He says, for, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And I think that that last phrase is true. On earth is not his equal. We wouldn't stand a chance. It's like humanity trying to stop a Category 5 hurricane. 
We can put up walls. We can shut ourselves into a home. But at the end of the day, you can't stop the storm. The sense is that this is a great dragon. This is, this is the enemy of humanity in the garden. And our adversary. So you know the story. Eve is deceived. Adam makes a rebellious choice. As a result, um, there's this catastrophic downfall of mankind into sin and conflict and murder and so forth. And God comes and he, he begins a process of cursing this, this, this rebellion, beginning with the serpent. Verse 315 is the heart of this curse. And it's the first glimmer of hope that there's, there's, there, there's going to be a turnabout. Uh, theologian Derek Thomas speaks of the significance of this verse, chapter 3, verse 15, this way. He says, with the possible exception of John 3.16, no verse in the Bible is more crucial and definitive than Genesis 3.15. It is it's the first glimmer of hope, and it also speaks the end of this this evil monster that goes by many names. And this is verse 15. I will put enmity, notice this is God saying, I'm going to accomplish this. I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now you can break that verse right in half, which I'm going to do. The first part we could label um, a state of war. And as he says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity, hostility between her offspring and your offspring, which raises a question, what is he talking about? What is this offspring? If you were to interpret this literally, well, you'd think of offspring of snakes like anacondas and pythons and cobras and rattlesnakes. But in the next chapter, and also as it unfolds in the Bible, you realize that's, a, that's really an absurd interpretation. It's talking about spiritual hostility. It's talking about two different groups of people. And I think of it this way. That the offspring of the serpent are those, be it in the demonic realm or the human realm, whose hearts are ruled by evil and flesh. The offspring of the woman are those who humbly trust and devote themselves to the Lord. There will be two realms, a realm of darkness and a realm of light. Those whose hearts are ruled by darkness, those whose hearts are ruled by a simple devotion and trust in the word of the Lord. And there's going to be animosity between those two groups. Now, on the positive side, what God's saying to the devil is like, there's a group of people that are going to resist you, that are going to remain mine. And at some level, they are going to threaten you. There will be some who follow, but others are going to oppose you. That's the positive side. That's going to be the curse part. On the negative side, it means that the darkness is going to constantly attack the light. And the whole flow of the history of, of the Bible shows this antagonism of those in darkness towards the light. So the next chapter, we have the firstborn son, Cain, who's ruled by his evil, envious, angry heart, rises up and slays his righteous brother, Abel. First expression of these two Lines at war and animosity. Most of the prophets through Hebrew history, through Jewish history, were killed precisely because they were devoted to the Lord. So there would be this, this, these two groups warring, and it continues on. 
I think John the Baptist and Jesus were thinking of this verse when they said these things. John the Baptist, he, he, uh, he speaking to the Jewish leadership that were ruled by their desire for prestige, for domination, for being self-righteous, seen by men. John the Baptist looks at him and says, you brood of vipers. That's a, that's a, that's a low blow. That's like saying, you spawn of Satan. Right? You're, snakes, that's what he's referring to. You brood of vipers. Like, you're, you're belong, you belong to the wrong party. And Jesus said the same thing, John. John 8.44 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Who murdered Abel? Well, Cain did. But the devil did too. There's a collusion of dark humanity and the serpent. He's a murderer from the beginning. You're the father of the devil. You're in the wrong party. You're ruled by darkness. See? So that's the state of war, the general state of war, and it continues between the children of light and the children of darkness. Second part. If the first part of verse 15 is general and speaking of the state of war that will exist, the second part is specific. It's particular. And it speaks of the devil's demise. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At this point, it narrows down to a single person, a he, third person masculine singular. In other words, a baby is going to be born who belongs to the group of the light, a righteous one, who is going to bruise your head. That's a baby's going to be born, a, a, a baby boy. This is, this is Christmas. Christmas in Genesis 3.15. And notice that both of these parties, speaking specifically to the serpent and specifically of a him who's going to come, he says both of them are going to get hurt. One's going to get hurt in the heel, the other's going to get hurt in the head. There's no mention of a poisonous snake here, so I don't think we should think of the heel as a deadly bite or strike. But in terms of a human and a snake, in the image of a head blow is a human foot stomping down on a serpent's head. And the idea is that it's crushed. That's why some translations actually translate it, and he will crush your head. One blow will not be fatal, at least not eternally. And the other blow, the head blow, the head crush will bring the end of things. It's pretty amazing if you just stop and think about it. Humanity is attacked by this great serpent, and out of the weakness of this human line is going to come somebody who's going to deal a death blow to his head. You know that phrase of, see if I can remember it again, on earth is not his equal, as Martin Luther wrote, on earth is not his equal. Well, that would be true until the he was born of Genesis 3.15. And if you take a look at the word offspring, which literally is seed in Hebrew, you know that 
that, that word occurs 42 times in Genesis and another 140 in the Old Testament, and many of those occurrences are all tracing this expectation of this promise of Genesis 3.15 of a champion, of a victor, of a deliverer. You can imagine the expectation. And I, I get a sense when Eve got pregnant again, had Seth, who called on the name of the Lord, that perhaps she thought, this is going to be it. Like, this is going to be all done and gone in, in, in one generation. And perhaps they, they, that didn't happen. And so you can move to Noah. It's maybe Noah's the guy. And maybe Abraham's the guy. Isaac Jacob's the guy. Maybe it's Moses. Maybe it's David. And through centuries and millennia, Thousands of years, there's this expectation of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, of the he who will crush the serpent's head. We're told in Revelation 12, at the very end of the Bible, that the devil too was waiting for this seed to come. And he had figured out a strategy, a tactic, to take him out. Now this is apocalyptic language, don't let it overwhelm you. The basic parts you can understand. Apocalyptic means images. Uh, speaking through images and, and so forth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon. This is the serpent. With seven heads and ten horns. That has to do with dominion and power. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. The third of the stars being angelic, or I should say b- demonic beings. And cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. Genesis 3.15, woman. Stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Again, that's just pure evil. That's right along the big bad wolf. This dragon's going to devour the child. She gave birth to a male child. Notice male, it's a him. Who is to rule the nations. That's Christmas. That's Jesus. That's the Christ. Of course, you read on as Nathaniel did, and you realize he doesn't have a chance. But as that child grew, and that's part of the Christmas story, is yes, we need the light, we need a king, but the birth of Jesus was also the birth of a devil killer, a, a warrior, someone who's going to take down the foe And the enemy, the first letter of John, wrote this. This is how he's seeing Christmas. The reason the Son of God appeared, that's Advent, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to bring him down. Now, as he grew, you know, he was assaulted over and over and over again, tempted in every way, and yet he never faltered. And at the very end, he was pressed against the ropes of a Roman crucifix, and his life ended. And the one that they thought was the the one, it seemed, and we know the story, and that's part of the problem. There's no sense of release, like, yes, But his life ended, and it seemed like this Genesis 3.15 had failed. The great hope of humanity, 
they've been waiting for for centuries and thousands of years is like, it's frailed. And I, I just using a, just a, like a little bit of speculative imagination, I wonder what happened when the powers of hell and the dragon saw the stone roll away and the Son of Man rise from the dead. I gotta think, using a little imagination, that there was a, a, a pause, a deep fear, a trembling in hell when they said something like, what did we just do? Or, uh-oh, or maybe some expletives. They do that in hell. Because it's like, oh, you know. I'd want to say it, but it's not appropriate in church. But it's like, what just happened? It's the best I can do. To see him rise from the dead and all authority being given to him. To know that the, 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 the chains by which the devil held humanity down were two. They were sin and as a result of sin, death. And Jesus broke them both. In order for us to be released from the curse, he had to take the curse that we deserved upon himself. And that's why he died. And then he rose to give us life. He broke both chains for all who would believe. And we're told he still is alive. He still influences. He still has power. But the chains have been broken for those who have believed. And someday the king's coming back. And when he does, he's going to plunge him under the fires of eternal death. And you know what? Jesus isn't going to need a large horde of freakishly large angels to force him into the fire. It's going to be one simple word from his mouth and it's going to be over. That's what we needed. Yes, we need the light. We need a king. But he is our victor, our champion, our hero, our warrior. And he has defeated the enemy and one day will bring it to a final and complete end. And can't wait till that day. So what are we supposed to take away from this truth of Jesus' victory? I'd like to suggest two in light of not only the truth, but also where we live and our culture. The first is simply to, to live with a, a joyful yet vigilant confidence. Like, just, we, we got to kind of retell the story all the time that, wow, the, the, the war is really won. Like, the battle still raged, but the war is won. And that's, that's reason to just go, yes. You know, the chains are gone in my life. Like, the devil has no hold on me anymore. Sin has no hold on me anymore, at least in a legal sense. And, and I'm free, taken out of his grip. That should produce a, a sense of joy. But there should be a confidence, too. Like, knowing the war is won. Or to use a, a comparative. How many of you saw the 49er Seahawks game a few weeks ago? Anybody? I know it's somewhat semi-profane to talk about football on, from the pulpit, but it makes the point. So we're in my house, and there is a kind of a rebellion happening in the Deckard family in which my wife, and I think all three of my children, are Seahawks fans. But there's only two present. That's Deanna and Isaac. And then I think we had seven dudes, all 49er fans. Man, it was like one of the best games. Like there's points where the two rebels are screaming at the TV, 
Seahawks fans. And the rest of us loyalists were screaming at the TV. It was a, it was a nail biter. It's going into overtime. Salt in the wound is that we lost. Deanna and I are okay. We went to counseling, and all is good. But we like games like that because they're just, you don't know what's going to happen. It's so exciting. And at the end, people are on the ground and crying, and other people are raising their hands. It's, and the last week's was like that too, right? It was, it was the last week, Saints and 49ers. It's like I'm watching. There's two seconds left. They're down by one. It's like, oh, what's going on? Field goal, two seconds, boom. This time we won. That felt really good. You know, I was thinking, we, we, we like nail biters. That's just, that's just when you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, games that it's a blowout, it's no fun. We don't like to be, we don't like to have uh, the end known for a game. But that's not the case when life is on the line. How many people do you know who like a nail-biter approach to cancer? Like, I love this. They want to have some sense of, they kind of want to know the end of the story. Am I going to be okay? Nobody likes living in the anxiety of limbo or having a, a child wander away from the Lord and not knowing if they're going to come back. It's, that's hard. It's like, you want to know the end. There's no, there's no fun being a nail-biter when you're a parent of a, a child who's wandered away from the Lord. It's very difficult. You want to know the end of the story. And if you could know the end of the story, you'd feel a sense of, yes. When heaven and hell are in the balances, we don't want to live in the limbo of anxiety. And we don't have to. Because our champion has died and risen again. So we live in the certainty of the end of the story. I just woke somebody up. <laughs> certainty. It's like, yes, we already know the end of the game. It's not a game, though. And that ought to give us confidence. So it ought to be joyful confidence. But I put the word vigilant in here because while we're not supposed to walk through this word fearful of devils or fearful of evil or trembling, we shouldn't. We should walk confidently knowing that this champion has won, and he, he reigns, and he's coming back, and he's going to finish his business and ours. That doesn't mean he doesn't influence and doesn't seduce and isn't trying to attack our world. I, I, I haven't met a single person, that does, whether you're a liberal or, 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 or conservative, who doesn't feel the foundations of our culture crumbling. And, and, and it's more than just human. We have to, to see this. There's this collusion between the demonic and the human. Hearts ruled by darkness. And, and we feel it. And we're supposed to walk through it and live in it confidently, joyfully, but vigilantly. Because his main target actually is you. Believers, people who belong to God, children of the light. And he whispers. He whispers things like this. And it's, it's hard to talk about this one because this, this is so real with some people that I know. Whispers things like this. Don't, don't take your sin that seriously. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not good, but 
relax. Relax. You can love Jesus. He's gracious. He's forgiving. Just relax. Don't, don't take your sin seriously. That kind of mentality, I think, defines a lot of Christianity in our country. Relax. Don't take your sin seriously. It's not, it's not good, but it's not a big deal. Love Jesus. Live how you want. That is a bold-faced lie. Because the Jesus there's quoted in the New Testament is also someone said, listen, if your eye causes you to stumble, that is lust, pull it from your head. Cast it from you because it's better to enter heaven with one eye than enter into hell, body and soul. To be clear, he's not speaking literally, but his point is made that we have to deal with sin when it's discovered aggressively, urgently, and radically. So this whole, relax, you can love Jesus and live how you want, is nothing but the whisper of the enemy. And you have to be vigilant for that. Say, no, the scripture says this, and I'm not going to submit to the lie. Or here's another one. This is more along the interpretive lines. This happening. It's like, you know what? For 2,000 years, uh, apparently we got this wrong interpretation of this verse. The history surrounding this verse is, is, is different. So there's a reconstruction of he, historical context. Now we can reinterpret it in a way that means something completely opposite that's been, that's been interpreted for 2,000 years. And that is, in large part, caving, or the motivation behind it, is cave to culture. So we create a new context and reinterpret it. Now what was once wrong is now right. And that, again, is nothing but the age-old demonic ploy that the devil used in Genesis 3 when he said, did the Lord really say, and then misquote scripture? Some distortion of the word. It's another ploy. Just to know, I can, we got to understand what it means, the Bible. And let's take the, the community of faith that's existed for 2,000 years that also had the Spirit of God and say, okay, this is how they interpreted it, and the Spirit of God was in them. Let's come to the right, the right decision. Or here's another one. This is another just whisper of the of the, the dragon, he says, if God was good, he wouldn't have let this happen in your life. That's another big one. How many people have just wandered away because they're angry at God, because they believed a lie that despite their pain, God is not good, or in light of their pain, God is not good. Gotta say, that is a lie. Though the Lord slay me, still I will trust in him, Job said. So that's a joyful yet vigilant confidence for life. Now, I'm going to categorize that as a largely defensive point, like standing firm. The second one, last one, is just simply, we haven't just been called to circle the wagons and not engage. We as God's people who have been given the spirit of God and the power of the gospel of God have been called to action. You know how many military 
metaphors and similes and, and words are used, like soldier and war in the New Testament, but not in a physical way like a jihad, but rather fighting for the souls of men, fighting for the kingdom of God, fighting the good fight of faith, Paul would say. That he has given us a, a, a purpose, like to, to be sure the power over the, the devil and, 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 and the winning of the war was Christ, but he calls us into his ministry to take his word and, and to go out and make a difference. A couple of, of verses that just kind of show you that God is in the process of using his people, his church, with his word indwelled by his spirit to actually bring people out of the darkness and into the light. Three quick ones. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He, that is God, delivered us from the domain of darkness. And all of us at some point were in dark, in the darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How did that happen to us? Paul would say over and over and over again. It's, it's the hearing of the gospel, the believing of the gospel, and a heart change. It's, it's the power of the gospel. Not the power of our humanity. It's the power of the gospel. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. He's talking to the church. Not because the church itself is strong. But the church is inhabited by the spirit of God with the gospel of God. And he is in the process of subduing the darkness under your feet as we go out. Or 2 Corinthians 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, that is like swords and guns and tanks, knives, AK-47s, AR-15s, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You ever wonder why Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? Gates are defensive structures. No one ever attacked somebody like as a gate. A gate is something you stand behind when the enemy comes in opposition. And the sense that I get from it is that as the church goes forward by the power of the Spirit of God, bearing the gospel of God in life and word, gates are going to fall because God's people were meant to go on the offense, not just on the defense. And we can't forget that that's one of the primary purposes we're here. Otherwise, we're really not being true to the Mandate. We're not being true to what it means to be the church. And that's something we just have to be honest about. Because if, we, if we're not being true to the mandate, well, then we need a heart change. Because we're supposed to be passionate about what Christ is passionate about. And he's passionate about his kingdom. Passionate about his gospel. Can you imagine for a moment? Little scenario. I'll end with this. A group of army rangers are dumped behind enemy lines into a dark forest. They land on the ground, they have their equipment, and they realize it starts raining. So they're like, man, we better create some shelter. So they quickly construct a lean-to, you know, a really primitive way of, of structure. And they get underneath it, and one of the guys says, I think we need a fire. It's kind of cold out here. So they rub two sticks together, and they start a fire. They probably have matches. Um, another one says, hey, man, I'm hungry. You hungry? Yeah. Okay, I'll go out and forage and find a pan or something, and let's... Let's kill a goat. There's a goat over there. And let's, let's, let's barbecue a goat. That sounds great. They're eating, and they're next to the fire under this lean-to shelter. And they realize, this lean-to is not big enough. So let's go log some pines, and let's make ourselves a little cabin with some floors. 
We'll grab some rocks and some clay, and we'll make a little oven and, and a little fireplace to keep us warm. A little windows that we can look out of and enjoy the view. But their mission, and the reason they were dropped behind enemy lines, was to rescue prisoners of war. And pretty soon, they're sitting on their wood furniture around a fire, enjoying food, and they've forgotten why they're there. All that to simply say, I think it's really easy as the church to build our life here with no realization that we're here for a mission purpose. And to keep that front and center in our lives. It's Christmas, it's day after day, it's just why we're here. It's okay to enjoy the things God's given you. It's okay to have a chair and a house. But if that's what your life is about, then we've lost the point. And we need to recover the central point. The darkness falls as God's people go out. We were having a conversation on Friday night, a group of friends, and we were talking about the homeless situation. It's a very complicated issue. No matter which way you slice it, it's just complicated. And we talked it over, and we could do this and this, and everybody wants to speculate, how do we deal with the problem? And every solution has a problem. And then we looked at each other and realized, while there, it is an issue that needs to be dealt with, to back up and recognize any solution from the outside really is kind of like a Band-Aid on cancer. The things eating away at our country that are causing these symptoms, symptomatic problems, is essentially a spiritual problem. At the end of the day, it's a spiritual problem. If you remove God from a society, it's going to completely fall apart. And there's no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. There's only one power in the universe that can change a society, as it did in the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening in our country, and that is the gospel, born on the lips and in the lives of God's people, going out as soldiers of Christ, bearing his word. Our champion has come, and I, I pray that this will have uh, encouraged you, maybe convicted you. And we're going to close um, the service in a little bit different way uh, today. I think we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing um, last week, but we're going to sing it again today. Because I, I was reading over the verses of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I realized there's a verse I've never sang before. And those of you who've been in a church for a thousand years, you're going to realize you've never sang it before either. And it's pretty amazing because it talks about Genesis 3.15. Deep doctrine woven into a Christmas song about the arrival of a champion. So I'm going to pray, and as the band comes out, we're just going to sing this. It's, they do it simply. It's more acoustic. Um, just sing it out and celebrate the fact that our victor has come. Lord Jesus, thank you for all you've done. Help us in our disbelief to believe more deeply in who you are and what you've done and the certainty of the devil's doom and the, the hope that we have before us of a world free of evil, free of lies, free from pain, free from death, and free from the devil. Help us to rejoice in these things, be confident in these things, to 